27 years into this, I'd have to say that everyone has a trauma. There's no person or though there's no family that doesn't have something. I used to think 27 years ago when I first came out of school and I hung my diploma on, on my first office wall, I used to think, yeah, of course, we have we have a family where my dad's brother didn't talk to him and my there was, you know, skeletons in, in our closet. And I thought we were the the exception and everyone else was really a normal, well put together. Every person and every family has something. There's a skeleton in every closet yeah. and every person has to do that work to open themselves up, to hear that trauma and to address it. You're a high achiever on paper and through the eyes of others. You've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is, you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over. But let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at karengoldfingerbaker.com. Rabbi Stephen Stark Lowenstein is the senior rabbi of Am Shalom Congregation in Glencoe, Illinois. Stephen is a dear friend, chosen family member, and someone I hold close to my heart. This conversation is full of truth, raw emotion, and love. Join us right now in the Trauma Hiders Club. Steve. Hi. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, Steve. <laughs> it is absolutely great to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. And it's beautiful to have a familiar face. But wait, it's a podcast. You can't see my face. I know, but <laughs> I can see your face. Our listeners can't, but they will see your face album cover for this episode. Wow. Yeah. How about that? Well, it is my honor to be here with you, a lifelong friend and someone that I, I respect and admire and truly love. Back at you, man. Yeah. So Steve, here we are on the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. What do you want to hide the most right now? Oh, what a good question. You know, it's right around the Jewish holiday time. So I think I just want to hide everything. I want to hide myself. I want mm. to just kind of crawl into a hole because this is a really stressful time, especially now with all that's going on in the world and all that's going on in our country. I mean, I have no idea kind of how, how the Jewish holidays, how how anything's going to look right now. So, mm. you know, part of me wants to just stick my head in the sand and, and, and hide. And, you know, I, I wrestle with those kinds of questions all the time and hiding a little bit of who I am and, and my fear and hiding a little bit of my pride on a daily basis. Uh, as a rabbi, I feel like I play a little hide and go seek all the time. Yeah, I hear that. Would it matter 
to your congregants if you had fear? Well, I mean, I think that it it would help some of them whenever I can get personal and, and I can open up, you know, those are the sermons, those are the moments, those are the reflections that I have. And, you know, in many ways, you know, every single time I walk into a hospital room, every single time I, you know, officiated a funeral or, you know, a wedding or another life cycle event, in some ways, you know, I'm reliving my own experiences, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm reliving my own traumas that, you know, sometimes I, as you know, and, you know, as we all know that, that we hide from and that we, that we struggle to, to address. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you think trauma informed or kept away some decisions in your life, specifically as it relates to becoming a rabbi? Well, you know, my path was certainly different. So as you know, I grew up a couple streets away from you in suburban Cleveland. It was a pretty idyllic, idyllic life. And, you know, we had a pretty easy time of it and could do or get anything that that we wanted. And um, it was a pretty easy life. And my dad collapsed on a golf course at, mm-hmm. when I was, you know, in ninth grade and never regained consciousness until my sophomore year in college. And those four years, some of those years I lived I slept in your sister's bedroom when she was at college because, you know, my dad was in the hospital and my mom was in New York with him. And my life was filled with that type of trauma. Mm -hmm. And for those four years, I was still able to visit my dad. I was still able to be a son. He wasn't able to be a father, Mm -hmm. but I could still be a son. And, you know, that has greatly affected my life for every decision that I make, for every moment that I go through. That's a big part of who I am. And, you know, it was born out of trauma. It was born out of, you know, necessity for, you know, a world turned upside down. And, you know, in some ways, I think every single person, one way or another, kind of experiences that at some point throughout their life. Right. Steve, what I see from over here is a 15-year-old in this idyllic life, right? Two parents, beautiful suburb. A dog. A dog. A, a dog, dog, two and a half, two and a half car garage, two and a half car and garage. Wh- who's got a half a car though? Right, exactly. And there's safety in that, right? There's safety, at least if we look at the construct of that life, right? It all looked good. And the biggest fear that we have as kids is that our parents are going to die. Absolutely. And while your dad didn't die, as you said, your dad could not be your dad. You could be a son. There is a There is a a depth of both darkness and recovery in that statement that is incredibly powerful. Oh, yeah. No, no question about that. I mean, you know, one of the traumas that I wrestle with all the time is like overgiving and giving more, Mm. whether it's to people or to relationships or to to anything. But I, I don't have that balance because for those four years, I still had to give. I still wanted to give because that was, you know, there was my dad and I would shave him and I would I would take a nap in his mm. hospital bed after school. That was just my routine because it was a, a normalcy for me mm-hmm. that in some ways still affects who, who I am today, yeah. you know, and I wouldn't trade that. I wouldn't trade that for anything, but boy, that's a really difficult pill for a 15-year-old to swallow. It sure is. Where do you think that resilience came from? Um, the Goldfingers. Um, it came from an amazing group of people around me it came from my mom you know I I looked to my mom who while she was 15 years younger than I am now you know and she's got to pay for college she's got a kid in high school 
her husband, who at the time, you know, was, you know, making a good salary as a salesman is evaporated. And she had to find a job. She had to go to work. I remember sitting at, at a table with my mom saying, you know, I don't know how I'm going to pay the, the mortgage this mm. month. I loaned her my bar mitzvah money one month to pay, you know, a bill mm. because she literally didn't have that in the bank account. You know, and we were in a community where we had to keep a happy face and we had to keep up with the Joneses. But, you know, my mom showed incredible resilience. And, you know, I carry that with me. You know, if she could do that as a 42 or 43 year old, I need to do that every day of my life. Yeah. Wow. And yet you were 15 and you saw it. Right. And by the way, as Steve mentioned, he did, he lived in and out of my house. And what I would have said about you at that time was that you were sort of a bad boy jock. Never would I have picked up on your heart in this, that your heart, right? Your heartbreak and your love for your mother, you could see her resilience. I don't know if it's every 15 year old boy who would, who could see that they might just be really pissed off yeah I, there's no question i was beyond angry i was i won't name names but you know i wound up throwing up on a bouncer's shoes with members of your family way underage you know because drinking that was an outlet and overeating was an outlet and right. doing all the all the bad things just to get through the day i played soccer and there was a game that very first year where i was the goalie and someone scored a goal and haunted me in the middle of the game. And, mm. you know, I just got up, kind of ran over to midfield and I punched the kid right in the middle of everyone. And mm. kind of, I'll never forget, I got thrown out of the game. I went over to the sidelines. I was so angry. And my mom, who was at the game, says, you need to go see a psychiatrist. Mm. You need to, you just experienced the trauma and yeah. you just let it out in a way that it's apparent to me, you're dealing with a whole lot of other stuff in your life that you need to deal with. Mm. And before the next game, I, I was I was a Jewish family service and a free counselor because we, we didn't have two dimes to rub together. But, you know, my mom made sure that I got to see, you know, a professional yeah. because I was dealing with a lot of anger and she didn't like the way that that was going to go. And, you know, she responded with lightning speed. Beautiful. And here she was in her own struggle. Right. And she said, this is this is this thing. This is this rage. This is this upset. This is this loss. Although your father was still alive, you were, in a sense, grieving. No question about that. Yeah. And looking back now, she died 19 years ago. Um, this is 30 plus years ago. But she was grieving the most, you know, yeah. like I still had a life. I still went back to my same bedroom and went to sleep every night. You know, her bed was empty, you know, right. like her her world stopped. And she dealt with that every single day Then I went off to college and, you know, and I had a life and, and my brother yeah. was at college and he had a life, but she had to deal with that every single day. Right. I'm curious. So here you are in your fifties and how'd that happen? Yeah. I don't <laughs> honest. I mean, the odds were, the odds were probably against both of us. No question. Well, you were you were a very bad influence on me. I just want you to know. <laughs> I have no doubt. <laughs> yeah. So the odds were against us, but here we are in the world doing, I, I don't know, I'm just going to say pretty extraordinary things. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, on one regard, I couldn't be happier, mm -hmm. you know, wow, look at all of these things, you know, occurred for me to be the person that I am. And I run a large congregation and I am able to apply that experience to everything mm -hmm. that I do. But, you know, I trade it all for one day with my dad. Mm. You know, I, tr I trade it all for one more conversation, one more yeah. opportunity to be together. You know, I never had a chance to really under understand who he is, was, and will always be in my heart. I would jump at that opportunity. But at the same time, you know, I harnessed that experience to be the best husband and father and rabbi that I possibly could be. And it affects me every day. I, you know, I have a son named Ben who's named, who never met his paternal grandfather, but in many ways carries on, mm. you know, some of the traits that my dad had. And I wouldn't trade that for anything, but, you know, that hole is still there, you know, like that, that grief, you know, I always talk about grief, not as a cycle, but as a, as a sphere. And, you know, I orbit around that death and many other mm. losses and many other traumas. I circle around that. There are some days where I'm a million miles away from it. There are some days when I am right next to it. I'm, I feel like I'm still living at the Goldfinger's house and David Goldfinger's making me lunches with poems on my lunch bag. You know, like that's amazing. To clarify, listeners, my father made my lunch while I was in high school, I think for all four years. And every day he wrote a poem on my brown paper lunch bag. So when Steve was living with us, I got a poem. I got a poem. Yeah, for, he got the for, poems for, for weeks. Yeah, he got the poems and the big thumbprint in the sandwiches <laughs> because he was yes. sort of a clumsy sandwich maker, but delicious, right? Oh my God. It could be the best bologna I ever Never ever bologna. Had it was never bologna because when I was in kindergarten, I went to somebody's house and they gave me bologna and I threw up. There was never bologna never allowed bologna. in my house. No, I can tell you what it was. It was chicken with Russian dressing, turkey with yes, Russian dressing, turkey, 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 yes, turkey with Russian dressing. Totally. That, and I, you know what? One, of, I had a soccer game one of those days that I was at your house, and my lunch bag said, "I only wish I had it." My lunch bag said, "Your goal today is to stop goals," and that was <laughs> that. That was the poem, and it was brilliant. Your goal is to stop goals. That's awesome. Just so y'all know, my dad has a bit of dyslexia. So for him to make poems, they come out in his head. And your goal is to stop goals. Clearly, this is this is some good poetry. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious about rabbis right? Or you in particular, I'm not curious about all rabbis, because you're the one in front of me, curious about you. Who do you turn to? Who pastors the pastor? Who pastors the pastor? Exactly. Great, very common question. First and foremost is my wife and two kids. Can't even begin to tell you how many times, you know, I've come home from a, a horrible day, a horrible mm -hmm. funeral. And you know, when my kids were little, you know, I would just kind of sit in their room and I would watch them sleep and I would just be paralyzed, but I mm. would just, you know, watch them and I would just be with them. And my wife is by far the strongest and most direct and, you know, the best sounding board that I've ever had. And, mm. you know, coach and confidant and she is there for me and has been there for me. I've been doing this for 27 years wow. and I've been in my congregation, this congregation for 20 years. So we've been through it all. 
no question about it. It's my family that is my first and foremost. It's it's my colleagues, the people that I work with. It's it's my friends in, in the Ravenet, and it's my inner circle of friends that I know that I can turn to that can help me, that can inspire me, that can just show up. I, I live by a rule that people want to know that you care more than they care what you really know. Mm. So that sometimes it's just, I had one, I had a horrible funeral once, 39 year old man who committed suicide. And there I was 11 o'clock at night trying to write, uh, you know, a eulogy and, you know, what am I possibly going to say to this family? And there's a knock on my door and it's a friend with a pint of Haagen-Dazs ice cream. Sat there and I cried and I ate the ice cream and we talked for an hour and he just knew that, you know, that's what I needed at that time. And Mm. he was there to pastor me and he was there to just be there for me. And, um, you know, I feel really, really lucky to have friends and colleagues like that. Hmm. Wow. That's really, yeah. So just in case anybody else was wondering who pastors the pastor, family, so important, partner, so important, and inner circles. Yeah. I mean, we, we always talk about having these concentric circles in, in our world that, you know, I have a, I have a really big life. You know, I have, I've been in this community for a long time. You know, my wife jokes that I could never have an affair because I can't go anywhere without bumping into someone that knows me or recognizes me. And, you know, <laughs> that's what comes with uh, living in, in the same city for an entire career, which, you know, I, I feel so fortunate to be able to do. But at that same time, you know, what comes with that notoriety that you have a lot of people in your world, but we always talk about having an inner circle and an outer circle. When those friends are in that inner circle, those are, you know, the most important relationships for myself and for my family. And we hold those up. I'm wondering, Steve, if a member of your congregation is experiencing some sort of stress some sort of, even let's just call it PTSD from some sort of trauma in their life and they come to you. What do you do as a rabbi and as a 15-year-old boy whose father had a stroke on a golf course? How do you respond or, or what sort of support do you give? What comes first? Got to hear the story first. Got to got to listen first. There's no question about that. I'm going to stop you. Who's listening? Who's listening? Is it Rabbi Steve or is it Punky Steve? And by the way, I can say that. Is it 15-year-old Punky Steve? Um, you know what? I think it's both. Yeah. I have two ears and only one mouth, so I should listen twice as often as I as I speak. But that's who I am. You know, yeah. I, I try to be the same person in everything that I do, whether mm-hmm. it's the 15-year-old me or the the serious rabbi me. I hope I hope I'm that same person. So it's listening to the story. Ellie Wiesel said, why did God invent people? And the answer that he gave was because God loves stories. And, you know, Mm -hmm. everyone has a story, you know, in some ways, 27 years into this, I'd have to say that everyone has a trauma. There's no person or there's no family that doesn't have something. I used to think 27 years ago when I first came out of school and I hung my diploma on, on my first office wall, 
I used to think, yeah, of course we have, we have a family where my dad's brother didn't talk to him and my, there was, you know, skeletons in, in our closet. And I thought we were the, the exception and everyone else was really a normal, well put together. Everyone else was cool. Like the Goldfingers, you know, like they were normal. They yeah, were look normal at us. And we were the ones. Okay. Mm -hmm. And 27 years into it, Karen, I know without a question that every person and every family has something. There's a skeleton in every closet yeah. and every person has to do that work to open themselves up to hear that trauma and to address it yeah. and, and to acknowledge it, you know, whether they need to sink into therapy, you know, that would be great. But sometimes you just got to acknowledge that that pain is there mm. and be able to incorporate that into your life. So Kyrian comes in to talk to me. I'm listening. I'm supporting. I'm giving advice. I, there's nothing that I can do to fix that problem, but I can be there to, to help them navigate it and to send them to people that could help them fix it. And sometimes it's just being there to the hardest part of COVID right now is that sometimes it's just to be there to put a hand on someone's shoulder and to say that they're okay. And, you yeah. know, for the last 18 months, I couldn't even do that as a rabbi. And, you know, that was beyond frustrating that yeah. you, you just couldn't be there in the way that we're trained and used to being there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear that. Steve, what I really love about what you just said is the just listening part. And I actually, I had a, a somatic experience when you said that, like in my body, I felt that had I had a conversation with you, not then you, but you now, that your response to my sharing my trauma would have been the response I needed. By the way, if this is the first show of Trauma Hiders Club you're listening to, what I've shared is that when I was 10, I experienced sexual abuse and hid it for, for good reason, for 11 years, maybe even 12 years. When I came out, so to speak, to my parents, the response I got was not the response I needed. It was, my dad said, if you put 10 people in a room, four of them will have experienced the same thing you did. So basically telling me I'm a statistic. And my mom said, I always thought you were a weird kid. So that, that was the response I got to coming out with my trauma. Now they did the best they could, right? I don't hold that over their heads. Um, however, as you were talking, Steve, there was some healing that I actually got over here when you said, I listen because what I know about you is that there is empathy and compassion. And I think for that moment that I had with my parents, those two things were not present. Hearing your story, Karen, you were in my life mm -hmm. uh, and a big part of my life in those hidden years. Right. You know? If I was 15, that means you're much older than I am. So you were 16. <laughs> Okay, right. so our friendship began in high school. So you were from 15 to 20 was when you and I were the closest. Those were your peak years of of, of hiding. Yes. You know, it, I hear that now and it breaks my heart. Like, oh my God, I was a shitty friend. Why didn't I help Karen? Why mm. why wasn't I there for, for Karen at the time? And, mm. you know, that those are the demons that I have to wrestle with, mm. you know, too. Like, you know, hey, did I miss something? But, you know, so many times I think that we live in a world where we say, don't just stand there, do something. And it's taken me 58 years to understand that the real response is don't just do something, 
stand there, you know, like mm. just be in that moment with those people yeah. and let what needs to come out, come out. Don't right. just stand there, do something. No, don't just do something. Just stand there. Just I love that. Be in that moment. And, you know, that's a big part of Judaism. It's a big part of meditation. It's just a big, it's a big part of my practice of, yeah. of, of who, I, of who I am. I love that, Steve. I, I do. Yeah. So important just to, I don't want somebody to solve anything for me. Just stand next to me or stand in front of me or be by my side. Right. That's, I think that's what we all want. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah Absolutely. So nice. As we approach the Jewish holidays for those listeners who are Jewish, how does that 15 year old Steve, I, by the way, I'm pointing to 15 year old Steve because that that's just where I have decided <laughs> that 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 was your that was a, a big shift in your life when your father had his stroke. That's the one I know of. And you may have countless others prior to that. However, that's the one I'm pointing to. And many after that, too. And I many mean, after that. Those are the necessary losses that we all experience. And, yes. you know, it's just part of who we are. Yeah. So how does 15-year-old Steve, who is within Rabbi Steve, the Jewish holiday, so to speak, holy day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is so much about both loss and about hope, right? A renewal. Absolutely. Yeah. We know that 15-year-old Steve goes wherever big boy Steve goes now. Is there a part of you that is on that bima, which is a stage, with your congregation that is just full of the, the heartache and the heartbreak that can lead to a deeper place with your people? Maybe that was a weird question. No, I, I think I understand it. You know, I don't often talk about my dad in a sermon, but when I do, I think it goes to a much deeper place mm -hmm. than other sermons. And people, you know, are glad, glad's the wrong word, but feel good when I am able to do that. And yeah. you know, I feel good about that. Sometimes it's about opening up our own wounds to begin the healing process. You know, I think 15 year old, 19 year old Steve is, is there every high holidays. I have to laugh. I don't think I've ever told this story publicly, but you know, I feel comfortable with you. So my dad died in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in 1983. So, you know, it'll be 40 years, you know, in two years or so. But so he dies and I go to Hillel for the holidays. And I remember falling asleep, it, sitting at services, you know, mm. kind of, I was in college at that time. I, I went right back to college and Yom Kippur was probably five days later. I'm not sure why I wouldn't have stayed home for, for Yom Kippur, but you know, I went back to college. My mom wanted me to continue with my education right away. And I kind of, I went back to college and I remember going to Hillel and sitting down and I wasn't with anyone. And at that moment, I truly felt alone in the world. Mm. And I sat down at services and I remember like the afternoon service, I remember starting to hear the Haftorah of Jonah. And then the next thing I know, I am the only one left in the room services were over and everyone left and I was still there. Okay. And like, I have this very powerful memory of like looking around and like, there I was totally alone. Services were over. I had said Yisker earlier in the day and there I was alone 
at the end of Yom Kippur. And it was a really sad, lonely experience. And, you know, I think about that, you know, at the end of every high holiday experience, and there's a room filled with people, or last year it was a room on Zoom, but there were thousands of people watching. Mm. Um, but there's not a high holiday that I don't think about being totally alone, yeah. you know, alone in the world, alone in, in myself, alone in my experiences. And I think that, that that helps me because I think that there are people alone all the time, especially during this pandemic, that we have to acknowledge. We have to figure out how to be there for those people. I don't always talk about it, but it's certainly woven into, you know, my trauma and my experience is just woven into who I am yeah. as, as a person. And, you know, 15-year-old Steve and 57-year-old Steve is the same. And I'm going to figure out a way to, to talk where both those people are, are acknowledged. Love that. Steve, what are you most excited about in your life right now? Definitely being on this podcast with you is <laughs> very, very high on the, on the list. <laughs> you know, I think that COVID has given us a chance to reconnect mm -hmm. um, with lots of different people in lots of different ways. And I think that uh, I'm excited about that. I think I'm trying my best to reach out and to be involved and to be with people to go back to some of the things that we did. I went to my first live concert last night mm. and I listened to James Taylor and Jackson Brown sing together. And, you know, in some ways that was definitely a night for 15 year old Steve, you for know, like, sure. like as I was singing along to both of their songs and it was so fun. Like I could hear three notes on the guitar and I turned to the person that I was with and I said, that's Carolina on my mind, you know, and how'd you know that? You know, so I, I'm excited to reconnect with people. I'm excited to to travel. Um, I haven't been to Israel in, in almost two years, mm. and I can't wait to get back. I can't wait to begin to travel again, to see the Jewish world and to experience the beautiful world that we live in. I have kids on both coasts, and during COVID, I haven't been to either one of their apartments. So I'm really excited to just to spend a little time with both of them in their in their homes. I've seen them because they've yeah. been with us, but I haven't been with them. So I can't wait for that to happen. I'm just excited to continue to to read and study and to learn and to fill myself up. I feel very lucky that I get to do that. And I also feel very lucky that I get to to do good things in this world, to, yeah. to share with people and to share my resources and to share my story. And, uh, you know, I feel lucky to be able to do that. Really nice. What's been most helpful for you being here in the Trauma Hiders Club? It felt really good to revisit the 15 year old Steve. Yeah. I don't spend a lot of time with, with him. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways for a lot of people in, in my circle here, they don't know that Steve Yeah, because I'm a big shot rabbi You're a you big know, deal. and I, I got to maintain that, but you know, I, I, I like revisiting that Steve. I like kind of closing my eyes and thinking about staying at the Goldfingers and getting that turkey sandwich lunch bag. <laughs> And all the bad influences. <laughs> okay. I really did think that it was baloney. No. Was, no baloney. Never. Good. And, you know, being able to articulate the very fact that every person has trauma, yeah. I think is really, really important for people to hear that, you know, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, it's totally okay. It's part of who we are. And sometimes we just have to be able to wrestle with ourselves. You know, probably this biblical story that I love the most is Jacob wrestling with the angel. Mm. and that he's transformed in the process. And no one really knows 
who that angel is. Is it an angel? Is it Esau? Is it himself? You know, who is Jacob wrestling with? The Torah text just says an ish, a being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that one of the things that I love about Judaism the most is that wrestling, you know, is just part of who we are. Right. And I was a really horrible Beachwood wrestler. <laughs> I think I only lasted about three practices with Coach I in the Beachwood wrestling team. I was a horrible eighth grade wrestler because I was heavyweight and I was like 30 pounds lighter than the Mm. people that I was wrestling and I just got killed. But what I really like is that ability to be able to wrestle, you know, wrestle with ourselves, wrestle with with our feelings, wrestle with, with who we are. And that, you know, if we all acknowledge that it's okay to wrestle, that would be a really healthy thing as we start a brand new Jewish year, as we start a brand new academic year, as we start this next phase of the pandemic, as fall rolls in at this time of year. Yeah, really nice. What I, what I hear and what you're saying is what's beautiful is the invitation to be with our own humanity. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the wrestling stop resisting, right? Right. And start wrestling. Start wrestling. <laughs> so um, that's think, a great slogan. Yeah. Karen, that could be a sermon. It, Stop resisting. Know, start wrestling. Yeah. I've got all sorts of, you know, check back with me, Steve. I can come up with all sorts of bullshit. So um, <laughs> lots are of. Sl- what I, are you saying what I do is bullshit? No, no, not at all. But if you want a tagline, I can whip one up. Stop that, resisting. Start wrestling is yeah. a great tagline. Yes. Yeah. And the wrestling is the ish. It is the us in this. I, I truly believe that that's, that story is a reflection of our own humanity. It is like a mirror. And, you know, there are many people that believe that Jacob is wrestling with himself. You know, I, that's like what I not, believe. You know, there's no question about that. Yeah, I believe that because that makes it more relatable. Sometimes those biblical stories, I'm like, I ah, can't relate. But this I can relate to if I make it. Yeah. So Steve, it has been wonderful having you here. It was fabulous to be with someone who means so much to me. And one thing that I want to say before we sign off is that your note about not knowing that I was in struggle, that I was in pain. That's why I have this show. I am an a expert. I have a PhD in hiding trauma. So you couldn't see it, right? Absolutely not. I mean, you were, you were, for my brother and myself, you were a bundle of fun. You were, you were the super cool. You were the quirky and super intelligent and incredibly funny person that had no fears in the world, you know, that you were, you were out there and you did a good job hiding. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. (laughs) And so I do want to say, of course you didn't see it. So I'm at peace with you and with me in both the way I hit it and the way you didn't see it. So I just want you to know that. Well, I'm really, I said it earlier, but you know, in some ways I think we all play hide and go seek. Sometimes there's no one there to look for us. Yeah. Um, The game's not very fun. And sometimes our hiding places are just too good, but you know, every game ends with coming out and showing where we're hiding. And I think that that's a really incredible metaphor for, for all of us to, yeah. to know that, you know, we can run, but we can't hide. Right. It's time to acknowledge that. Yeah. Well, I loved going seek <laughs> with you. We did go seek less hiding, no hiding. We did go seek. So it's been wonderful having you here. Thank you for 
coming into the club, the best club around, the Trauma Hiders Club. Truly an honor and really a blessing in my life. You have always been an amazing, amazing friend and that someone, you and your entire family have been uh, important stepping stones in my life. And, and part of who I am is because I knew you for that. I'm very grateful. Well, thank you for that, Steve. Big, big love. And uh, what's with the Cleveland Guardians? Are you kidding me? <laughs> You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.